You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! I know Kung Fu. Show me. I want you to do me a favor. Yeah, sure. I want you to hit me as hard as you can. What? I want you to hit me as hard as you can. I find your lack of faith disturbing. Welcome to the John Weldon Show. All right, be serious now. Okay, John Welton here. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. I am excited to have my friend and fellow intellectual thinker, Bible teacher, travel, world traveler. Uh, my friend Bill Vanderbush is here with us today, and we're going to go a lot of different places because that's how our conversations go. But uh, you get to sit in, and uh, I actually don't know all of what we're going to cover, but it sounds like we're going to be talking a lot about the Better Covenant and perhaps eschatology and some other thoughts. Bill, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks, John. Good to be here. Awesome. All right, is that the energy level we're going to operate at today? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm practicing uh, life as a future theologian. I just need the British accent. I need a hound dog. I need a tweed jacket, a pipe, and a, and a cottage with a thatched roof. And yes, there. Some, some leather elbows on there. Yeah. yeah. This, is, this, is what, this is what happens when you travel and speak a ton and preach the gospel many, many times a weekend. Then you come home to Florida. And there's something about Florida. There's, there's, a, there's a spirit of vacation that's on this state. <laughs> and it impacts residents as well. And it puts you at a state of just complete and total rest. So uh, that's that's where I'm at that right now. Sounds great. That sounds great. I just looked out oh. the window and there's an alligator swimming by. Right <laughs> no kidding. No kidding. Hand to God. It's a daily occurrence. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's wild. Where in Florida are you? You're near Orlando, right? Orlando, yeah. Yeah. Okay. South of Orlando a little bit. So fantastic. And so you've been traveling all over and you speak pretty constantly. What are you seeing out there? What's what's going on in the church, the kingdom? What are you seeing right now? Well, a couple of things really are catching my attention, Jonathan. One of them is that uh, people are fascinated with Jesus. And while that shouldn't come as a shock to anybody, for anybody who's pastored a church in the last 30 years, you know that this is kind of a different time. Mm -hmm. I think of it like uh, when uh, when I was growing in in pastoral ministry decades ago, pastor of my first church the idea was you know secret sensitivity was coming around and yeah. people were people were fascinated with everything else but jesus and so we had to come up with a jesus-sized version version of something yeah. um whatever people happen to be fascinated with and hope that if we could just make it jesus adjacent and attach jesus to it that maybe somehow that they would eventually be fa fascinated with jesus so we had a christian version of everything you can imagine and so, of course, you grew up in that era as yeah. well. And and uh, and the problem is, I think once we, we we now reached a point in time where I think the next generation is genuinely looking for the authentic Jesus, and they're fascinated with him when they see him in the minimalistic, call it minimalist, but it's simple, the simplicity of the reality of the incarnation, the gospel, and the fullness of the finished work of what the cross accomplished. And, and really the message of the better covenant, the message of the new covenant, or what I've, I've termed lately, and I know we've talked about this, but the Christic covenant, the covenant of Christ. There's something about that. The people want to know, where do I belong? And is Jesus real? And how can I have a relationship with him, that authentic Jesus, not the, not the, um, 
politicized Western uh, churchianity's version of evangelical fundamentalism. The idea of, of Jesus in his rawest, most real form, who still would get up at our conventions today and say, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, pray for those who despitefully use you, and do good to those who mistreat you. Uh, so so the, I see the next generation having this ridiculously um, passionate, fervent fascination with the authenticity of Jesus himself. And when that happens, it seems like all of our Jesus-adjacent Jesus uh, fluff kind of gets in the way of it. And, uh, and so, so they're looking for what I, I would call table conversations, one-on-one -on -one communication with somebody who doesn't talk down to them, but will answer their questions, uh, absorb the information, listen to them, look beyond the costume and actually prophetically speak into their life, words of, of life that resonate, I would say, with the frequency of heaven in such a way that causes them to come to, come to a realization that, uh, that Christ in you, the hope of glory is the destiny of, of every every single human being that has ever lived if we just simply respond to the yes of the cross. So when people say yes to Jesus, what are they saying yes to? Well, you know, we've been so tribal that uh, most people are like, well, I say yes to what my church's mission statement is, what my church believes. And everybody thinks that their church, of course, believes the 100% of the Bible. But the reality is, I, I feel like now what people are grabbing a hold of is just this the sense of of um, of I just want to go back and strip everything else away, uh, and and find the authenticity of the genuineness of a a, a, a a relationship of union with Jesus, where it's a surrender to reconciled rest, not a striving to somehow catch up with a God who's trying to get away from me. So, uh, so I'm finding a lot of a lot of that. I'm also finding I'm finding myself fascinated by many of the churches that I've, that I've gone to in the past have what I would say is a fort in both covenants. And to me, this is, this is something that has got to be challenged in the body of Christ today and really in the life of every person uh, that, that names the name of Jesus. And, and that is that they have received new covenant salvation by grace through faith. They may even, and you know, thanks to the Better Covenant message and so many of the books that you've written over the years, they may even have a positive perspective of what's formerly been called the end times, but but yeah. the future, you know, a victorious eschatology. The <clears throat> yeah. Herald's book title. But they have, having even had all that, you can see still. A, a strong foot in the old covenant when it comes to relationship with God. And that is a consistent sense of an impending hammer drop of punishment or judgment that's about to show up at any moment. And where I see that happen often is in our conferences and our preaching and our prophesying. Um, because prophesying uh, Ephesians 2, uh, for example, where it says that in the ages to come, he might show us the surpassing riches of his grace. That doesn't sell books, and that doesn't get a whole lot of attaboys at conferences. But if I get up and I say God's about to, you know, wipe out everybody that voted differently than you, you know, the book book line at my table is going to be a mile long. You know, uh, people want to people want to hear that message for some reason. They clamor for that because I think we have this idea that that's what heaven is. Heaven is where God wipes out all your enemies, even as He tells you to love them. So, uh, so we have a God that we are firmly hoping is going to do the very thing 
opposite of what he commanded us to do. As if, if I love my enemies, the, the payoff is that God will take them out. And I'm, I'm wondering where in the world do we get that concept? Where do we get that idea? Uh, so, uh, yeah, I feel like there's a lot of uh, foot in both covenants going on in the church today. And what I'm encouraging people to do in, in, in so many beautifully offensive terms is to pull that foot out of the muck of a, of a dead old covenant and, you know, that's not my terms, that's Paul, right? Ministry of death and condemnation. Pull that foot out of there and get your feet cleaned off in the in the glorious uh, crimson blood of the river uh, uh, of, of the new covenant that has never lost its power to borrow an old hymn. Was that a lot? <laughs> I, I think there's a whole bunch of Shemitah that we have to deal with <laughs> in the church for sure. <laughs> I remember you talking about something about when the Shemitah hits the fan as a as a good book title. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Oh man. Well, I yeah, I remember going to the um the Left Behind movie that had Nicolas Cage when they made the remake. And I went to did, the Did you pay money to go see that? I was one of the few. I <laughs> I went I went and I, I did a hashtag kiss my left behind. And I did a live, as I watched the movie, updates through the whole movie. Like, oh, here's what he's doing now. I go back and I read that on, uh, it was on Facebook, hashtag Kiss My Left Behind. It's hysterical. I, like, there's a picture of the parking lot. There's only one other car there. And this is like a regal cinema, which would normally have hundreds of cars. But nobody, nobody went to see this movie. And our Rotten Tomatoes, I think it was like 1% review. Like it's one of the worst ever made. <laughs> but halfway, halfway through the film, sitting alone in the theater, did you, did you just for a, just a, just a split second think maybe you were left behind? I should get a refund perhaps. <laughs> so that was more the thought. <laughs> oh man. Well, that was that was a lot of thoughts. So let's let's drill into it a little bit. What do you think it would look like if somebody actually got their foot out of the old covenant and they didn't have half I'm saved by grace through faith, but I'm also waiting for an angry father God to come and smash me for every little mistake that I make. If they got free of that and were fully in the new covenant, what could that look like? That's a great question. I I've been referring a lot lately to a book by a guy named James Fowler, who was a Harvard professor, and um, he wrote a book called Stages of Faith. He's a theologian. He was a psychologist, and he he uh, came up with uh, seven stages of of human development in terms of faith that mirrored the seven stages of emotional, social intelligence development and maturity that we go through just as people. Mm -hmm. In an anthropomorphic sense, we, he, he was basically saying, "What would happen if I just looked at the spiritual man and the and the human person, and if I overlaid one over the other? Could I see maybe where we as the church have stunted in our growth yeah. in terms of here's the seven stages of psychological development that takes to make a, a whole person, <clears throat> and you can see it as it goes through life. Is there any way that we can maybe gauge where we have?" Hit, hit a roadblock spiritually in our development in the last you know two thousand some odd years. So this is where he and and it's a it's it's a heady book, and so I'm going to like really dumb it down in a way that makes makes it possible for me to understand. Please, yeah, I think it answers it answers the question that you're saying. It's like where would where would it take us? 
Mm. So he started it in stage zero, stage zero up to stage six. So that's the seven. Okay. Like why start in zero? Really, you know, like just complicated already. So stage zero was you come to a, a an acceptance that God exists. And you look around, maybe see creation and go, okay, God actually exists. Mm. Stage one is not enough for me just to believe that God exists. I actually want to know him. So it's the birth of a desire to actually have a relationship with God, which leads into stage two. And that is typically a study of, let's say it comes to the scriptures and he's specifically going after Christian, Christian uh, development. So you come to the scriptures and you see the scriptures as in a sense, the story of the rules of engagement, the terms of engagement that we have with God. So it's, okay, well, God believes that some things are good and some things are bad. So I have to adjust my value system now to align with the scriptures, which reveal the heart of God. So basically what it, it comes down to is you're trying to figure out what I have to do to get in right with this God, to believe in a way that is congruent with the value system of this God. And so um, this is where you develop a justice button. You're looking at the rules, the theology of things, you know. Uh, you're not so much concerned with having a theophany in your encounter with God. You just want to figure out the rules. And so in the study of the rules, you come to a realization that, wait a minute, there are people who figured this thing out. There are people who've studied this for generations, and they've actually systematically created a theological framework. And this group over here has a name or an organization called a tribe. And so you choose your tribe. That's stage three. So now you're in the rule stage and stage two. Now you pick the tribe that has figured out the rules the best. So you, now you go into your tribal system. After being in the tribal system for a little while, you begin to have this uncomfortable, nagging realization. And that is, my tribe does not know everything. And not only that, but there are some things that they got that are just flat wrong. And they have hold, they're holding on tightly to some things that make no sense whatsoever. Yet, I can't figure out why. What's what's the deal? They have some things that are traditional, but not biblical. And almost every tribe has this, you know, on some level. And so in this point, you can go one of two directions. You can go into stage four, you can back up into stage two. And a lot of people do this. They back out of their tribe, back into stage two, reacquaint themselves with the rules and find a new tribe. So in my lifetime, my, my grandfather was Quaker, my dad was Wesleyan Methodist, Nazarene, got filled with the baptism of the Holy Spirit, became word of faith. I went to Christ for the nations, ended up pastoring an Assembly of God church, ran into Bethel Church out in Redding, California, got acquainted with IHOP, Toronto, and the whole revival movement. Next thing I know, I find myself in Florida. I'm a pastor at a Presbyterian church, of all things, traveling and speaking in all kinds of different conferences, super ecumenical, um, just, a, just a wide variety of, of, of backgrounds, right? And so I feel like I have seen and been a part of a lot of different tribes. And if you hang out in the tribal system of stage three long enough, you can kind of get to this point where you're going, I think everybody's right about some things and pretty much wrong about others. Not everyone, any one tribe has a corner market on the entirety of this, this, this thing of the gospel to the point where there's not something they believe that's not just a little bit off. And that leads you into stage four. Stage four is the disillusionment stage. The stage of disillusionment, if you hang out there long enough, will lead you to start deconstructing faith, which is where we've seen a ton of people going these days. 
they go into a place of deconstruction that if stuck in long enough leads to destruction. Or as a friend of mine said, it's like swinging a sledgehammer. But eventually God comes to you and says, okay, give me this sledgehammer. Here's a framing hammer. Let's build something together, right? And so if you can, you, if you can stay through this stage of deconstruction where you actually, it's kind of a home renovation where you can take things from where you've been that have value into into the future and let go of of everything that's really not of God um, and and walk into the future with the simplicity of the purity of, of just Christ. Then you hit the stage five stage. And the stage five stage is what Fowler called the mystic stage. And this is where you embrace paradox. This is where you embrace the reality that, that we don't understand everything. And even if the Holy Spirit, who's meant to guide us into all truth, fully lives in us and, and knows everything and wants to guide us into everything that he knows, we still don't understand everything that we know. And so this process of unfolding revelation is going to be a little bit slow. It's going to be tedious. It's going to require study. It's going to require the student's heart to get in this place of humility where you become comfortable saying, I don't know. Then, uh, then you turn, and from that vantage point, from the mystic stage, stage five, you look back at the tribal stage, and you offer it no condemnation. You simply realize, my goodness, these people, um, these people are, there's beauty in every single tribe on some level. I mean, if I can just grab the treasure in this one and the treasure in this one, and you, and you start to see the areas where maybe they began in the spirit, ended in the flesh, and you can parse out the flesh and the spirit, and you can begin to see the spiritual uh, aspect of what God deposited within that group that really sparked the community that became a tribe, then you can start to see the collective expressions of the singular body of Christ whose head is Jesus. And it all starts looking beautiful to you. That's really the mystic stage in a, in a nutshell. And there's so much more to it than that. But if you hang out there long enough, Fowler said that eventually, and he said it's so rare to get there. In the mystic stage, you learn how to demonstrate love, to, to live out the love of Christ. But in stage six, you become love. It begins to actually govern everything you do. It changes the way you see uh, there's something of the, the frequency of the heaven that is carried in your being in such a way that when people encounter you, there's a, there's a, uh, borrow, borrow some terms. I know that Brian Orm would love, uh, you borrow the resonant frequency of the heaven that just sort of hums in the dynamo of your spirit. And when people talk to you, they feel like they're having an encounter with God. They may not remember your face or your name, but they know they've met Jesus. Like you become a living, breathing catalyst for a person to actually have a, a, an encounter with, with something, uh, the living Christ that awakens the spirit, the, the image of God and the likeness invites them into that likeness, that kind of thing. So mm. Am I there? No. Uh, I've, I feel like I've been living in stage five for quite some time, but I feel like I lean up against stage six a lot. And I'm, I'm constantly saying, um, <laughs> uh, I believe, help my unbelief. You know, is it possible to, to carry so much grace that you don't have a heart of offense anymore? Um, that, that, uh, that, that you have a grace that literally heals, that brings healing to people. Where well, you could look at the people that are murdering you and say, Father, forgive them. They know not what they did. You know, the, the exemplification of the life and the lifestyle of Jesus who was hanging out with sinners and when religion said, why in the world do you do that? He says, the sick need a doctor. 
And one of the areas I think where where maybe we can make this make this from stage two to stage five or six, which is the understanding of um, you, you outlined this so beautifully in New Covenant Revolution, where what for the first thousand years of Christianity, there's no such thing as atonement theory. It's 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 Jesus and the cross and the resurrection conquered sin, death, hell, and the devil. But then you have you know, God bless St. Anselm, who comes along with an illustration comparing God to a feudal lord who has honor, and when his honor or holiness is offended, then there has to be punishment and payment. It can't be just forgiven. There's got to be punishment and payment, so enter Jesus to take the punishment and, and do the payment with the currency of his blood. And what he did, as far as I can see, what he did there was two things we've got to reverse. The first one and I know you've spoken about this so extensively over the years, is, is, uh, is that he turned, he turned the cross from being aimed at sin, death, hell, and the devil as our enemies and aimed it square at the Father, and now God's our problem. And from there, we have all the atonement theories. Like, how, how in the world did Jesus make things right with the Father, and has he really done it? And what's left on your plate to do, and, and all of that stuff. But the thing that I see that he did that was probably the most damning and the damaging was that in creating this illustration that that hung on until today, even in Western Christianity, uh, he, he fundamentally changed the definition of sin. So sin suddenly becomes like a financial or legal matter. When, as far as I can see from Jesus in in the first thousand years of Christianity, sin <clears throat> was spiritually speaking, spirit sin was a medical matter. It wasn't a financial matter that needed payment. It was a medical matter that needed healing. And so when we when we don't know that, then words like ransom start to weaken, I think. Um, like you can ransom somebody three different ways, as far as I can tell. You can, you can uh, if somebody's held captive, you can go and say, okay, well, I'm going to pay off the captor and set them free. Or I'm going to take their place so that they can go free. Or there's the third way, and that is to kick in the door, take the person, you know, take the captive into freedom, and put the captor in their own chain. And to me, that's what the church seemed to preach, you know, with a pretty solid Christus Victor perspective for the first millennia of the Christian faith. And then after the 11th century, it seems like we complicated things and weakened what the cross actually did. So uh, bringing people to an awareness of the fullness of what the cross actually accomplished, would, I think, is a huge step of getting us out of stage two and three and getting us into stage five and six. I think it's Brad Jerzak that said that, the, and, and Fowler also said this, but other theologians have echoed this, that, that modern Western seminaries train the next generation of Christian leaders in stage two thinking and theology and ideas. And we preach stage two sermons, stage two, three sermons. And, and it, it, this is one area where I thought James Fowler was ultra prophetic and it gives me tremendous hope for the future. And he said, there's coming a day uh, where an entire generation is going to be fed up with the tribal system to the point where they're not even going to acknowledge it. It's not going to matter. what. And what they're going to do is they're going to step into a stage four disillusionment, deconstruction, and reconstruction. But by people stuck in stage two and stage three, it's going to be looking looked at as the great falling away and the great apostasy. <clears throat> and it's almost like the church at large, we'll just flush that entire generation as a lost cause. I feel like that's what's happening today. But he said that's actually a setup for an entire generation of people who will step into the stage five, stage six stage of actually answering the prayer of Jesus in John 17, 
where he prayed that we would be one and that that oneness would look just like the Godhead. So I feel like we're right on the precipice of something amazing happening. And, I, and everywhere I go, John, I see this, this, uh, this appetite for unity, not uniformity, but unity, authentic unity to the point where people are just, they're just tired of the tribalism that we have come to know. Wow. Wow. If you were to overlay those seven stages on the natural side, I, I, I guess I was missing the piece of, you know, the, the process of maturing on the psychology side. If he was saying, this is how we grow on the theology side, mm -hmm. what are those stages of development in, in a person's life? Yeah, the, the, uh, he doesn't spend a whole lot of time going into that. He refers other books that have written extensively about it. Okay. But um, in, in psychological development, there's another book he wrote, a follow-up to Stages of Faith called Faith Development and Pastoral Care. And he, and he outlines quite a bit in that about the, the human development. And a lot of those first three stages of faith happen from zero to seven years. And so um, by the time you hit, you know, teenage stage, you're hitting into stage three. You know, from zero to two, it's three to seven years. It's from seven to about seventeen, you're 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 finding your tribe in stage three. Um, from seventeen on, you're getting disillusioned over and over with the system, and you're bouncing back into stage three, stage four, stage three, stage four. You kind of like back and forth and back and forth. You pretty much figured out the rules of how things go, and, and whether you're going to be a conservative or liberal, liberal growing up to a certain point. Um, but and then that's kind of how it seems to seems to work its way out in our culture because that's how we've tribalized our culture into two big, big parties here and thousands of sub parties underneath of them. But from, from the, you know, from the time you leave high school, the time you get through college, something happens where you stop so much feeling with your heart and you start thinking with your head. And so we start to care less, but we are concerned with truth more. And so we kind of dull our emotions down and um, we become arrogant with our with our head knowledge. And that's where we can get back into. It's almost like we revert back into a stage three tribal system. We're still trying to pick our tribe and who we're part of. But the idea of of the mystical moderate is the person who can actually who can actually navigate through human life, and and rather than define people by whether you're for or against me, friend or my enemy, or whatever like that. You end up saying, okay, I want to sit down and understand you. I want to hear you and listen and understand. I want to find out why you think the way you think. And, and, and I want to hear your story. And so that's where you get into the stage, I'd say, five and six in terms of human psychological development is where you're, it's like uh, your value for relationship starts transcending your relationship with your values. Because when my relationship with my values governs everything I do, that the only people I can hang out with and be comfortable are people who have the exact same values as me. But when my value for the person is the priority, then I get to the point like, like I think the Apostle Paul did this. I think you can see this in Paul's letters where he starts out in Thessalonians, you know, encouraging the Thessalonians going, hey, guys, everybody that, that has abused you and whatever, they're going to get theirs in the end. You know, you got some good coming. They, you know, they don't, I kind of think to where he gets to the, you know, the end of his life and he starts 
saying things like Christ is all and in all. And, you know, from now on, we regard, regard no man according to the flesh. And and all of these uh, amazing mystical phrases that seem to look beyond the costume to not just find out the potential that's inside of a person that could come out, but to see who God knew from before the beginning, kind of echoing what God told Jeremiah, I knew you before I even formed you. So I think of it like, um, like, uh, like in 1 John 2, when John says, I write to you, he says, children, young men, and fathers. And to children, he says, to children, you, your sins are forgiven and you know the Father. And to young men, he says, you're strong, the word abides in you, you've overcome the evil one. And to the fathers, he only says one thing. He says, you've known him who's from the beginning. Well, that's that's mystical. You know, <laughs> Stage two, you know, there, there it's like uh, the young men stage is, hand me a sword, point me at a dragon. I want to go conquer the world. Stage, stage uh, three there, the father stage is, they realize the enemy is defeated. The kingdom is not under threat. They're at rest. It's not complacent apathy. It's a confident rest, quiet rest in the heart of the father. But they're willing to cheer on the young men while they go out and like spend their energy, you know, swinging swords because it does something for their own personal development. Um, so I think I think there's, you know, there's an interesting overlay between the the human psychological development, the stages of faith. But I don't know, is there? Does the stages of faith does it make sense to you? Like I can see my own journey in it. It it does. It, it definitely makes sense. I think the challenging part that we have, and maybe this will require more people who are in stage six and five to help, is that stage four chasm from deconstructing the tribalistic faith to getting to a self sufficient. Uh, walk. And I, 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 I choose that wording specifically because, and I, I'll give a perspective here. So one of the, um, one of the things I learned from Bulletproof Husband, which is not a religious organization at all, um, but uh, there is some psychology that's involved in it and really, really was helpful for me in my process of restoration and getting healthy emotionally as a man. Uh, was they they talk about stages of coming to completion with your father or with your mother, and so they have stages, and I'm I'll I'll lay them out briefly. But the concept being that when you're young, you idolize your parents. My parents are superheroes to me. They're my daddy's the strongest dad in the world. You know that whole concept, and then you get to. Uh, teenager it's the uh fu dad stage it's the rebellion phase of pulling away and becoming your own person and you see your parents flaws and it just makes them so much less and they go from superhero to like villain and so you have the rebellion stage then you move to around college age and you have um approval seeking and you're trying to get a good job to make yourself look good. You're trying to get a good degree. You want to impress your friends and your parents and be a success and show that you're, you're worthy. And so approval seeking phase. And then after that is if you get to that phase, phase four would be acceptance. You actually see your parents as they're just flawed, normal people who love me and did their best. And I accept that about them. And then the stage beyond that is completion, where you've actually completed with your parent, which 
I'd never heard anyone even describe this concept, but that you'd actually see in your father, not just acceptance, but you'd see the gift of masculinity that he gave you and be able to thank him in such a way that it lets him know that his job as a father is done. Like he could die tomorrow and he's good. He did a good, he did a good job, he did his best job. He he's complete and you're complete in that you don't need anything more from him because you got what you needed. You got the gift of masculinity. I'll say for myself, you know, I, I don't think I've shared this, um, yeah, I haven't shared this yet. And so uh, in the process of working through that, I had <clears throat> I had already arrived at acceptance toward my parents. But when I heard about completion, I knew I wasn't there yet. And the first thing that you have to do is work through all the layers of any blame or resentment you still have. And so I'm working through it, working through it and emotionally letting it out. And then uh, I said, it, to my wife, I said, Karen, I, I need to, I need to go on a backpacking trip for a few days just to focus on completing with my dad. And she, I'd explain the concept and she's like, go for it. So this was August, uh, 2020. And I had been in the program a few months at that point, things, tremendous change had already happened in our relationship. So she's fully supportive. I go out in the woods, spend about four, maybe five days in the Adirondacks backpacking through the woods alone and I am letting out every bit of bitterness, resentment, crying, screaming, yelling through the forest for days. I'm losing my voice, letting it rip. And it finally like one day it was like I got to the bottom of it and I I could feel like I don't have any more bitterness, resentment, any of that toward him. And when I got to that point, it clicked what it was, the masculine gift he had given me. Because for years, I wow. carried a frustration toward him of he's a blue collar worker, spent 40 years at Xerox, was the ultimate nice guy, but was run by my passive aggressive controlling mom and just this unhealthy dynamic in our home. And I had all this frustration, resentment toward him. Uh, for not showing me how to be a man. And I, the idea of even what was the gift of masculinity, it was like having a hard work ethic. Is that, is that the gift? Like that was all mm. I could see until I got through the layers of the bitterness and resentment. And when I got through it, it clicked. It was his tenacity that for 40 years, he provided for his family. He'd go do this job. He'd come home and be nagged and nitpicked and berated. He just put up and walked straight through always because of this tenacity and that that is actually a gift I've always had, but I would never put a name on it to go. I got that from my dad, like his tenacity. That's my tenacity. Like there's no stopping me. I will, I will go to as many counselor and psychologists, whatever, until I fix what needs to be fixed and deal with myself. And I, I won't stop. And you know, it's the, uh, the, the David Goggins in me, you know, that 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 measure is from uh, the tenacity that I saw in my father. And I, that clicking for me into completion, I, I just see there's so many people who walk in uh, spiritual immaturity, longing and looking for a spiritual father, a spiritual mother, 
because they never completed with their actual parents. And so now they're still not self-sufficient. They're still looking for parenting, but now they're trying to project that into the church because what clicked for me was, oh my gosh, all these years I've tried to get this need filled and met through this spiritual father, that spiritual father, and walked around in my ministry life with this giant orphan heart instead of, I actually have a, uh, um, as a man, a bucket, a hole in my bucket that needs to be dealt with. And when that was taken care of, it was like, I'm not, I'm not looking around for some spiritual father figure to complete me in some sort of way. I'm actually a self-sufficient son, brother, father, husband, man. And yeah. in the same way, that's, that's actually what God is like. He doesn't need us. He is self-sufficient, but from his self-sufficiency, he chooses to love and give and connect and provide and all of that. Instead of when you, when you give from a place that you still need something, you're guaranteed to have manipulation. Right. I'm going to give you this, but I, I kind of need something back, you know? <laughs> and there's always a string attached instead of i don't i don't need something back from you i'm gonna give and when you describe the mature stage i i i feel like there's there's a not enough demonstration of that for people who are in stage four who are going through deconstructing to say hey there's a possibility that you can end up on the other side of this with jesus love the church not carry around resentment and bitterness toward whatever denomination you grew up in. You yeah. don't have to go and be in Oprah in the new age. Like you don't have to float <laughs> off into outer space and hate Christians, but you actually yeah. deal with the hurt, the emotion, all of that. Uh, one of the concepts that hit me was uh, forgiveness. Like we talk about forgiveness, like in a way that we approach it like, oh, you got bitterness? Slap some forgiveness on it and move on. You know, you just need to forgive. And it's like, no, actually forgiveness feels really automatic when you get all of the bitter emotion out. When yes. you're responsible and you deal with it and you get it out and you just go, ah, oh, you know what? That person, they were really, they were doing their best. I know that they weren't trying to hurt me and whatever. But forgiveness is not just something you force over the offense and the resentment and the bitterness. You actually have to get those feelings out. And then the forgiveness just comes almost automatically. That's yeah. been my observation. I think you I think you hit the nail on the head there. I, that's, to me, the key of forgiveness is you have to actually believe that at that moment, for whatever reason, the person who offended you was is actually doing the best that they can at any given moment. I think Brene Brown's got to become well-known for saying, for saying this, and that is to, is she tells a story of sitting down with a deacon board who, you know, we're looking at all these people in their church who, you know, cause them pain and different things and say, what if you just, what if you just chose to believe, I'm not saying it's actually the case, what if you chose to believe that the person was actually doing their best at this moment? I mean, it may not be the best that they, that a person should be doing, but for that moment, they were actually doing the best that they could do at that moment. And she said, you know, to a person, everybody just starts breaking down and realizing that if I, if I choose to look and believe and see the best about every person, even at their worst, 
then there's something of compassion that arises in my heart. And, and that compassion, it, it seems to neutralize all of the bitter, jaded, cynical resentment and offense, you know, that we carry. There's a freedom in that. And, and I also think it's a freedom for the people who we look at, you know, and even in the, the worst possible condition, for whatever reason, addiction, you know, it's hit their, hit their life. And we look at them just say, well, you know, just pull yourself up, up by your bootstraps. And, but if we can just stop for a second and believe that a person is doing their best, um, you know, so people say, well, where's that in the Bible? I see, uh, I see it in, um, in Peter, in Acts 10, when he goes to Cornelius's house after the vision of the sheet coming down out of heaven. And he makes one of the most, to me, one of the most astonishing statements in the Bible where in Acts 10, 28, he looks at everybody and says, you know, it's unlawful. It's against the law for me to even be in this room with you guys, but God has shown me that I'm not allowed to call anyone unholy or unclean. And I'm like, what a statement to make, you know? And so this is a question I ask people when I talk about this and getting both feet in the new covenant. I said, here's, here's an offensive challenge to you that'll take you into a stage five and six lifestyle. It'll also actually give you, I think, the ability to be the kind of invitational person that can pull a person out of the muck of stage four uh, while people are just falling off left and right. So, yeah. and that the, would be like this. Here's the challenge. What would it be like if God came to you and said, you know, Jonathan, I want you to preach the gospel all over the world. Um, go to every person I tell you to, and I want you to share the good news of what I've done. Oh, by the way, just one rule. You're not allowed to see anybody as unholy or unclean. That's it. Now go. <laughs> I mean, what would it change? I, mean, I had to take this for myself. I mean, like, how would it change my interaction with people if I was restricted from seeing unholy or unclean in my interactions or dealings with them? And I began to realize how deeply I, I decided just to try an entire day of going through and just looking at everybody and going, okay, I'm going to purpose in my heart to see Christ in people who don't see him in themselves to see people as holy and clean before they've ever done anything to deserve it. You know, I, well, I, the idea was, well, is that true? Is that real? People want to know that. Is that real? And I'm like, I, I asked the Lord that. I was like, God, is that true? Did the cross actually impart the holiness of heaven over humanity? And then I felt like the Lord was saying, wrong question, because that's, that's the question that'll trip you up. Forget whether or not that's true. Just let it be the perspective that you carry in your interaction with people when it comes to representing the gospel. And I thought, okay, that much I can agree with. I can agree with it as a concept or a perspective, even if I'm not 100% con convinced that it's true. So I did this for a day and I was floored by how often I felt, I would say I hadn't felt authentic agape in a while. You know, except for people that I really, really, you know, care about and people I know. But I'm, I go to the store and the person bagging the, the, the groceries, I suddenly look at this person and I go, holy and clean. I mean, in my mind, I'm looking at them like, holy and clean. And I, all, now all I want them to do is to know Jesus, right? I have this overwhelming sense of compassion and love. Next thing I know, can I help you carry these out to the car? Yes, you can help me carry it. As we're walking out to the car, I'm like, I'm sitting there just talking about, the beauty in this world. And, you know, and not only that, but I see it when I look at you and man, you know, there's just so much of the image and likeness of God stamped on your life. Are you aware of the image and likeness of God? I mean, next thing you know, we're having this great conversation. 
those moments, things like that, it's like I realize just not pr proving whether it's theologically true or not. It was just my own personal perspective shift to align with that idea. That changed the way I saw life and did life and engaged with people. And uh, I, I started realizing, my goodness, my my uh, uh, all of my offense bank is leaking out. I, I suddenly have lost my right to be offended. Um, and, and not that there's not evil and sin and junk in the world and things that absolutely should infuriate us. But I begin to, uh, you know, we have a, a saying that I, th I think has become such an annoyance to the world, and that is love the sinner, hate the sin. But I begin to realize what we're, <laughs> it's a great ideal, but most of the time when we say that, it's to justify our hatred of the sin, because that's what we talk about the most. And the loving of the sinner becomes like 5%, and the hating of the sin becomes 95%. When people are like, man, you just hating on everyone. No, love the sinner, hate the sin. And, and I'm like, you know what? Let's just set our hatred aside for just a half a second. What would it look like if we authentically just loved the person and saw from heaven's perspective the end from the beginning and, you know, held like the father and the prodigal son, the ring and the robe. He doesn't have to go looking for it. And he holds on to the realization of the father's heart before the kid even comes home. I thought about that one day when I was when I was considering, you know, um, people coming back from failure because you know anybody who's lived this Christian life for a long period of time realizes they have to deal with the idea of I disappointed God beyond the capacity to, to you know even be able to walk as a child of God, let alone a minister of the gospel again. And and I began to realize part of the growth and maturing process is is the being so selfish that you find yourself squandering an inheritance, ending up in the hog pen, but then having the strength to come home to where the only person in the house who loves you is dad. And I mean, I think about the, the prodigal son coming home, elder brother, I imagine it might've been years before the elder brother would even, even feel right about having a conversation with his younger brother. And I imagine the servants in the house, we're constantly, we'd be constantly talking. Nobody in the house would probably accept the kid except for dad. And I'm thinking that's that's where you see maturity in the body of Christ is when a person has blown it so bad and yet they come back into the into that place of going, I'm gonna love people who don't love me back. That's to me what it means to 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 uh love the sinner, hate the sin. It's it's I love the human being made in the image and likeness of God, and I hate everything that creates an illusion of distance and separation between us. So I'm going to push that veil back and dive headlong into valuing the individual. I don't know if that makes sense. I've never actually articulated like that before. I'll, I'll drink to that. that. Fun. <laughs> oh, well, I... I Isn't the ember I, mug like the greatest invention ever, Jonathan? You got one of these? I, I don't. One of these. I got uh, this. Is uh the Biltmore Estates? I took oh. care around Christmas and uh, wanted to get a souvenir from our trip up there. It was it was great, but unfortunately, my my dishwasher is making the whole thing peel off the foil. I'm like, ah, come on. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you'd think it'd be better quality than that, right? Uh, somebody, somebody, uh, get, I, get me. A... I tell you what, though, I really relate to what you're just described and i'd never seen that from the perspective of 
coming home, the father loves him, the servants are talking crap, and the the older brother's hard-hearted, and it's like, yeah, yeah, been there, been there, living there, <laughs> walking, walking through it, so yeah, that's... There's something super. of development that happens in that, you know, the willingness to step back in and engage with, with the body that you know is going to judge you, you know, because immaturity runs from all semblance of judgment and you know a, a fully surrendered heart that says i know if the father loves me that's all that matters the father receives me back it's all that matters and when it comes down to it you know every everybody else will just you know deal with it but but what the father thinks is really the, the only thing that matters you, you said a word way back at the beginning you said the word authenticity and i i feel like that's been a huge word for me in this process and it's you know it's a very far along stage of development in maturity to have that word be able to actually live in that word of authenticity and or integration where you've actually integrated mm -hmm. your shadow side and all of those things that um you don't get at the lower levels of development and uh you know all the years of mask wearing which is you know another name for narcissism but more people than just narcissists wear masks and live behind their facades and approval seeking and perfectionism and trying to be a nice guy or a nice gal and and all of that instead of really getting down to you know what there's the real raw me and this is who i really am and i'm not apologetic for who i really am i may be apologetic for how i hurt somebody but i am me and that ownership even the integration in who god is that i am that i am he is who he is and that that sense of authenticity which um has been a huge part of my journey over the last five years and coming into that uh what how do you see that with the stages of development and the covenant and being free of law and masks and bullshit and all of that like yeah. talk to me about that a little bit the quest for authenticity um to me is is wrapped up in I mentioned this a second ago, but uh, what, what God told Jeremiah, I knew you before I formed you. So then I, the question I have, if the Lord says that to me, he says, Bill, I knew you before I even formed you. Then I'm thinking, okay, if that means I could be known before I knew I could be known, doesn't mean that I maybe existed eternally before. But I began, I know that I began then in the heart and the mind of God. In other words, I, I began as a, an imagination of God that formed into reality. Um, the question that I would have is, God, what did you know? Because what you first thought of before I knew myself, before I even got here, that is the truth of who I am. That's my most most authentic self. You know, or, or like the Bible says, is he who has made us and not we ourselves. Um, authenticity to me has nothing to do with what I think about myself. It has everything to do with agreeing with what God thinks about me. So that's where I see it is I have one question in this life, and that is to find out what God believes about me and then surrender to agree with that, which means at some point, uh, if, if what God believes about me 
is different than what I believe about me, uh, then I have to be willing to let go of the lies and labels that I believed about myself to come into an agreement with what God has always known to be true. I think the problem, though, is that even if we do come to an awareness of what God believes, we want to do, you know, like the woman at the well who jumps up from the well and runs to the town and goes and says, come meet a man who told me everything I ever did. In other words, come find somebody who sees me, truly sees me, and he knows me and, and believe what he believes about me. I realize, you know, there are those in the world who may never believe about us what God believes about us. And I think we can find ourselves wasting a lot of time trying to convince people of our identity rather than doing what I think ultimately is the purpose of every Christian ministry, and that's pointing people to Jesus. The closer I get to Jesus, the more I become aware of somebody else's authentic identity. So it's like I look at a person, I go, oh my goodness, I know from from you know a prophetic perspective what God placed in that person, who they were meant to be. Suddenly I can't get offended at the person. I begin to realize every expression of a false identity is just selling them short of the authentic uh, reality of who God knew them to be. Um, it'd be like making fun of somebody and you know, going in a cancer ward in, in a hospital with a bunch of terminally ill people and going, I'm going to make fun of all these people who got notes. I have compassion for those who are blinded by the sickness of sin to the truth of the reality of who God's always known them to be. And because of that blindness, they're acting out a false identity that God didn't give them. So you say, well, does that mean you're tolerant of sin? No, it means that I have I can look beyond the sin issues to have a love and a genuine understanding of the human, the individual that Christ died for. And uh, and and recognize that, you know, if, if while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, that means that, and, and in that death brought us into a state of reconciliation with the Father, that means that unity has nothing to do with agreement. There was no agreement with anybody with what Jesus was doing on the cross, but it was that act of selfless compassion that actually brought people into a reconciliation with the Father. Which means to me, then the definition of unity would be like this. And this is one of the ways I think we can bring authenticity out of people and demonstrate a stage five, six uh, unity. And that is unity is when you're willing to lay your life down for somebody who does not agree with you. Mm. And that's, I see what Jesus is doing there. It's like, it, it, unity doesn't require two people. It requires one, just one. I'm not dependent upon what other people think either about me or about the gospel or about Jesus in order to to be a person of unity in this world. All I have to do is be willing to live a life of sacrificial compassion, to lay my life down for people who don't even agree with me. And I feel like if that's how Jesus brought us into a reconciled rest of union in the heart of the Father, then turns to us in 2 Corinthians 5, you know, Paul says, he's given to us the ministry of reconciliation. Now I go, okay, well, so I'm going to promote reconciliation and unity. How? Well, if I define it by everybody agreeing with me, then all I do is argue with people until they agree with me. But if I define it by, okay, it's not dependent upon them. It's purely on me because I can't change what anybody else does, but I can demonstrate a sacrificial compassion for people who don't agree with me. Then I become a living invitation for them to perhaps step into a place where they're willing to, to hear the gospel and part of that gospel being a revelation of Christ who ultimately reveals us to ourselves. And, uh, you know, if the mystery of the gospel, and I think this is probably the heart of myst Christian mystic theology, is Colossians 1.26, where it says that the gospel is 
Christ in you, the hope of glory, the mystery of the gospel. Christ in you, the hope of glory. I think Bill Johnson said some years ago, the joyful expectation of the manifest goodness of God is what the hope of glory is. So that means when I look at a person, I go, okay, I, I want to grab what uh, you know Paul said in Colossians 3.11, where he looked at the barbarians, the Scythians, the Jews, the, the Greeks, the slave, the free, and he says, Christ is all and in all. I think what he was doing was he was looking at every single human being and going, I see the joyful expectation of the manifest goodness of God upon this person's life. How can I be a catalyst for that? Well, then I become a conduit for authenticity to flow from the heart of the Father into, into a, lost, uh, a, a lost and hurting person's heart. So, yeah, I, I mean, it's a lot about authenticity, but to me it's really authenticity is, is, doesn't go beyond what God has always believed about us. Otherwise, we just will justify wearing a mask and justify wearing a costume and justify living out the the role of a false self, a false identity that God didn't give us. Mm-hmm. And I tell you what, Jonathan, daily, daily, I feel like the Lord is confronting me with ideas about myself that that I'm not 100% sure I believed. Uh, part of this came from one day I was I was um, I was uh, lurking around the verse that talked about you know many will come in my name and say Lord Lord we did all these things and he'll say depart from me I never knew you yeah I thought oh man well <clears throat> that you know that's always terrified me but I felt like the Lord was saying you know two impossibilities in that line there first off what do I not know I'm like well you know everything it's true. The other part is, where can you go to get away from me? David figured that one out in Psalm 139. So when he says, depart from me, I never knew you. If a person actually believes that they can depart from God and he doesn't know something, then there's lies they've already believed about their father. And any lie we believe about our father ultimately will uh, will reveal something, a lie we believe about ourselves. And so I felt like the Lord was saying, this is not a warning, it's an invitation. It's an invitation to intimacy. And that's what you're after, isn't it? An intimacy with my heart. Yeah. Absolutely. And he said, why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself? I'm, I'm driving. I'm actually driving to preach at a church when I'm having this conversation with God. Tell me a little bit about myself. I said, well, okay, we've already established. You already know everything. He said, but yeah, I want to hear what you think you know about yourself. Tell me, reveal yourself to me. Then I get this picture of Jesus hanging on the cross and naked in front of people and men, women, and children there, you know, on a, on a hillside. And, and I'm thinking, wow, well, you you definitely were authentic and revealing and transparent to humanity. And look what we did to you. Okay, so you're not gonna you're, you're not gonna punish me for revealing myself to you. So here's 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 what I think about myself. I start saying, well, I am, and I start listing certain things that I believed about who I who I was. And here's a crazy thing. It's an amazing thing happened in this moment. This has been this has been a, <clears throat> a decade ago. I <clears throat> felt like the Lord. When I heard it come out of my mouth, my ears heard myself speak about something about myself that God didn't agree with, immediately I knew it was a lie. And all of a sudden, there was a challenge to go, okay, now what do you think I think about what you just said? And I'd say, okay, so I have to change these words around to reflect what you believe. And I had a harder time saying what I felt like God believed about me than holding on to a lie I believed about myself. And I felt like the Lord was in that moment revealing a false humility. So many, so much, 
humility, false humility is just laying hold, white knuckling onto lies about ourselves that somehow um, uh, beat us down. And uh, and it doesn't serve us in the long run. Uh, I, I had some friends, I don't know how much time you got, but here, I, I had some friends uh, that, uh, that uh, ran a whole bunch of crazy websites back in their back in their pre-Christ days, ran all these crazy websites and uh, said to me, I said, tell me about that business a little bit. I mean, made a lot of money in that business. I said, yeah, do you know what? The most lucrative website we ran was not a website that dealt in pornographic or violent material. So the most, the most lucrative website we ran was a website run by, um, there were these, these specifically women who uh, would berate people and get paid for it. And I said, who would pay for something like that? They said, CEOs of some of the biggest companies in the world. And I said, what do you mean? He said, because all those people at the top deal with imposter syndrome. They, they are so convinced that they don't belong there, that if, if they don't have some, this is the way they deal with narcissism, is they have to have somebody who's not, you know, kissing their rear and who will who will just get online and on a Zoom call with them and just rip them up one side and down the other. And he said, they'll pay somebody 15 minutes just to tear into them, tell them what a loser they are, just to their face, call them by name and say, you're such a loser, you're so worthy of this, that. And if they just sit there and just take it and absorb it, saying things that nobody who works for them would ever say, mm. then they can at least feel some semblance of normalcy. Part of the system, I think, that, that, that props up the false self and the lies is what I would say is, on the Christian side of things, a celebrity Christian culture. You can see it with the downfall of Hillsong, um, all these massive ministries that have just tanked. And you begin to realize, I mean, I see it when I'm, when I'm on public, I'm thinking, if I don't keep myself accessible to people who have genuine challenges and can ask real questions, I can end up surrounding myself with people who are constantly blowing smoke up my prayer shawl all day long going, man, you're the greatest thing ever. Yeah. But, um, you know, I have friends around, I have friends around me who have no problem telling me, you know, your breath stinks. And there's a couple of other things I want to point out too, you know? <laughs> yeah. And it's kind of a safety net on one hand, but here's the thing that makes me know that they love me. And that is they're, they're willing to tell me the truth about everything. And that is, they're willing to tell me, I, I believe it when I, when I hear them say, hey, listen, this is what the Father believes about you. Again, they're not just, they're not just whistling you know, words I want to hear. They're, they're telling me something that's actually revealing the heart of God. And that's, you know, they break off lies, they reveal truth. That's what true friends actually do. And I think mm -hmm. if the entire body of Christ could start to live that out, relationally connected where you earn the right to have that kind of brave communication, then, then perhaps that we would be far more authentic uh, to a world who looks at us and goes, ah, you, you guys are, you guys are fooling yourselves. Mm. Oof. Yeah. You know, <laughs> thinking as you were talking, we haven't used the word empathy, but it's a lot of what we're talking about is whether you're at the grocery store and you're you're just seeing people that are not necessarily believers, but your heart is going out and you're connecting with who they really are, the image of God that's in them, even though they don't 
that yet. Um, there's a piece of um, like we we quoted uh, Renee Brown as far as everybody's doing their best. There was a season where I listened to all of her books and just devoured everything from her. But there's a step. There's a step, and I don't think it's in her material. But the concept of coming to the realization this this is something I came to that. If I had the same experiences as this other person, and as a result, told myself the same stories that they did, then I would make the same choices they did. Whether it's the 700 pound man who can't get out of his bed, that I could look at him and judge, or I could go, well, if I had the same experiences and I told myself the same lies, I would be that guy right there. Exactly. Or Chipotle burritos, like I'd be doing that. If I were, you know, if I were, uh, uh, had the same childhood, had the same molestation, told myself the same stories, I would be on OnlyFans like so-and-so. Like all of those. <laughs> and, and this is what it says in Hebrews 4, is that we have a high priest who can empathize with our weaknesses. It's the one time it shows up, that word empathio, empathia shows up in the new testament and it's referencing how jesus could empathize with our weaknesses our frailty as human beings because god put on a human suit and showed up here and could see an experience and there were times he could look at somebody and go you know that if i had the same experiences and the same told myself those lies that they tell themselves I wouldn't be Jesus. I would be Mary Magdalene. I would be, you know, Peter. I would be, you know, whatever. Yeah. And, yeah. And we just, we, we have to have that grace that understands I, I would be right there. And it's, it's so easy to end up in that ditch. Right. For me, one the things that was helpful in my process over the last five years uh, was I had this experience where after, so, so I went through two years of chaos, uh, 2018, 2019, 2020, it hit its peak in March of 2020. It was, it was excommunication. It was blogs going out. It was everything. And then another separation from Karen. And that led me to the Bulletproof Husband program. And in that, uh, program, I started implementing all the tools, rebuilding trust, changing as a man. It was tremendous. But that was over the summer of 2020, full lockdowns, the whole deal. And then in the fall, I was invited to actually go through the first round of training as a coach. Well, one of the things they did is they partnered you up with other coaches that are being trained. Well, here is Dr. Jonathan Welton, who is a theologian and a you know well-known Christian teacher, whatever. And who do they partner me with? Well, they pick my partner is my buddy Steve, who is a atheist, Jew, bisexual, married to a woman he's separated from, going through his his own issues. He is. Uh, got a background of being a male stripper and a porn actor. And let's put him with Jonathan. This will be his partner wow. through the coach training. And Steve pointed this out several times, laughing hysterically. 
He's like, I got the theologian. <laughs> so Andy's Canadian. I mean, I mean, you can't, you can't have. Oh, everything. well, now that's a deal breaker right there. Oh my God. Oh, God bless the Canadians. He, he didn't vote for Trudeau though. So I, you know, he's, he's got a couple of things going good. Um, Steve is amazing. I, I, he's still, he follows the podcast. He follows my blogs. I'm talking about you, Steve and uh, uh, him and his wife love, love what I present. And, and it's wild because this process of walking through hell together and being authentic and being real and getting down to, you know, real brass tacks was like such a experience that we don't often have in the church where we're living with our masks and all of our layers of fakeness to try to get yeah. approval and be authentic. And here's somebody that we can have this back and forth. And, and I'm realizing in this process, like I can empathize with him. Like I would totally do all the things that he's done and he would totally do all the things I've done. If we had the same experiences, we told ourselves the same lies and how easy it is to just actually empathize with people's humanity and go, no, I get it. Like, I understand why the prodigal son ended up in the brothel and then in the pigsty, like totally relatable. But for yeah. the older brother, you pretend like it's not relatable. Like, I would never, I would never do that. And right. it's like, no, you totally would have. If you had his yeah. experiences and his lies, you'd totally. That's, a hard, that's such a hard thing, I think, for people to come to a realization of. Um, but I've come to the uh, awareness that whenever I hear somebody, whenever I see somebody watch somebody else's life and then be able to say, I would never, I'm thinking, oh, don't ever say that. Yeah. Because it's almost like you're signing up for, you're signing up for an elective. <laughs> and, and I'm thinking, oh boy, I can, I can already tell there's going to be a challenge. I'm going to have to walk them through. It may not be the same thing, but eventually everybody comes to an awareness that, uh, Given, given the right situations, the right circumstances, and the right scenarios, anybody could do anything. And when you begin to realize that, I, I mean, people say, well, I couldn't, no, I, I couldn't, I couldn't murder, I couldn't do this, I couldn't do that. And I'm thinking, no, no, you, part of being a healthy person, I think this is a stage five mystic reality, though, part of being a healthy person is realizing under the right circumstances, I could do anything. Now, that means what I choose to do really matters. I'm not just doing it because I'm a good person and somebody else isn't doing the other thing because they're an evil person. They're having a different experience. And because of that, their story somehow has led them to this moment. And, and I want to gain an understanding of where they are. So perhaps I can maybe, uh, maybe Tracy has this beautiful, beautiful line that she loves to say when we do marriage conferences. She says, she says every person's life is a book and don't judge the story by the chapter you walked in on. But recognize that your involvement in their life is actually meant to help them write perhaps a glorious conclusion or at least the next chapter. And, uh, and that's what we do. We become a part of somebody else's story and engaging with that story from a posture of, of the heart of God uh, is, is probably one of the most beautiful things that we can do. Yeah. Wow. I, I, yeah, I, I just think there's there's so much uh, that the body has potential to grow into. You know, yeah. we have, you know, a third of the planet that claims Christianity and and yet uh, 
a long way to go in actually stepping out of like i i think i scroll TikTok and every fourth or fifth uh uh live is somebody with their bible open talking about we're in the end times and the mark of the beast and we're all in and i'm like oh my gosh like i you know i'm i'm as anti that as you could get and and it's still in my algorithm like this is in everybody's (laughs) algorithm this is poisoning everybody's algorithm and i'm thinking man we've we've got a long way to go if we've still been peddling that for 50 years and the amount of uh legalism and oppression of women and you know and you go yes. down the there's so many issues that have to be worked through but when you get to that point of actually authenticity uh integration empathy you you it's no longer just simply well sin is a violation of the law or or even about separation it's it's sin is anything outside of love and yes yes it's so yes. simple you know, like oh you're you're hurting yourself you're hurting your family you're hurting your your children and grandchildren by living that way because it's outside of love that's yes. the that you're going to cause and that's it's it. yeah that's that's well, really i think it. i think if there if there are people and recognizing that they're in stage four and they've been in the tribal stage and they're going i i don't know where to even go from here Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like part of what we're doing today here is, is speaking to that company of people. And, um, you know, you're at a crossroads of sorts. I'm again, speaking directly to them. You're, you're at a crossroads where you could step off the path. And I'm talking, these aren't like levels of growth or like stages of, of, of faith in the journey. And you could step off the path altogether. But if you recognize that there are people out there who are having conversations that are that are centered on the truth of Christ and, and becoming love is the goal, then, you know, I'm, I'm just saying to them, keep going, just keep going, keep going to a place where your heart uh, melts and warms with an understanding that, that, uh, you know, think of Jesus praying, Father, Lord, you've given to me, I give to them that they may be one, John 17, 23, they may be one, just like we're one, I am you, you and me, and I am them, perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them just like you love me. And, you know, you think of Jesus praying that, it, it, we call it the high priestly prayer, but God is not supernaturally going to bring that about. That comes about because, uh, because we actually surrender to that stage five, stage six, that becoming love. And, uh, you know, imagine praying a prayer and 2,000 years later, it still hasn't been answered. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, that'd be a little discouraging. And, uh, and yet the expressed desire of Jesus in that moment is really, you know, the ball put in the hands of, of, of humanity. And so um, there's something about that that I think can, can be an invitation for people to just push past the disillusionment, past the deconstruction, and into uh, that place of going, you know, I, I, I let go of all offense to the body of Christ, and I I see the tribes as, as uh, you know, 43,000 expressions of, of one body uh, for whom there is really only one head. This is a very decentralized uh, community uh, when it comes to human, human-led initiative. This is, you know, uh, this, is, uh, this is all about the headship of Christ over the singularity of the body. And, 
and and there are people who are having these conversations not just you know this today but, but all over the place and and they're growing they're growing in number and they're growing in in uh uh i i think they're 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 growing in influence as people begin to realize the tribal system is not working for us so. mm. wow well Bill, I just want to acknowledge, uh, I want to say, say this out there while we're on the recording too, that I, I have experienced this from you over the course of my last five years. And I would say even before that, because it's, it's been your heart. Uh, I wouldn't say that you have been a spiritual father necessarily in my life, but more like an older brother. That's like, I see you, I cheer you on. I was going to say, I'm not that old. Yeah, exactly. I'm not that old. I wasn't going to put on you, Grandpa Bill. Uh, but uh, yeah, man, it just, I, I've experienced this with you and I've appreciated that so much along the way, whether, you know, you're coming through Rochester to speak some somewhere and we go out to, you know, Carabas or something, it, the, the love and the, the, the measure of, I see you beyond the mess, beyond the, whatever, the drama and the everything around you. Um, I, I just, it's such a, Bill Vanderbush is a really good friend to have. Mm -hmm. And that's uh, just something I wanted to acknowledge and uh, say that for other people to hear. Because, uh, yeah, man, it's, 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 we need more leaders that I could say that of and uh, appreciate that about you. So I think, I think we can end there, but man, this has been such a great time. I've really enjoyed it. Um, do you have any final thought or, or whatnot? Man, I think that's, thank you so much for saying that. That means really means a lot. And uh, yeah, I pray it's today's a challenge for everybody. I know I challenged myself today a little bit more. So, uh, you know, awesome. we're, we haven't arrived, uh, but we're already home. So oh.